Well, thank you, youth band, for leading us in worship. You guys did a great job. Um, I was waiting for the drummer to twirl the drumsticks, and it just didn't happen. That was my only request this morning. Just give me one twirl, and um, they did great. They did great. We had the opportunity to sing about uh, what it means to really put our faith in Christ, that we, we trust Him through the most adverse circumstances. And you know what makes faith really difficult sometimes? You know what makes faith really difficult sometimes? Other people. <laughs> uh, I'll take that as an amen. I don't know who that was that chuckled. Um, but man, don't other people make faith really hard sometimes? Don't you hate it when um, the guy that you know is up to no good gets the stuff that you've been hoping for? In our sense in which we expect righteousness to pay off, living God's way to pay off, um, we're going to hear a little bit from Solomon this morning in the second half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 about how do we have a faith that endures difficulty? How do we understand the plight of the human condition, that this world is broken beyond belief. But before we have the opportunity to hear from wise man Solomon, there's another wise man that you're probably a little bit more familiar with than Solomon by the name of Mark Twain. Mark Twain, one of the things that made Mark Twain so fascinating to read is he was a satirist. So he would take things that are common to human life and he would just poke fun at them. And so he wrote, he wrote a... Um, a short story <laughs> titled <laughs> The Story of the Bad Little Boy Who Didn't Come to Grief. That's the name of his short story. So you can, you can kind of figure out where Twain is going with this story. It is, um, it's the story of a little boy uh, by the name of Jim. I think that's completely coincidental. And Jim just happens to be a particularly adept, mischievous little boy. And as it goes, you know, you... You tell, you tell your little boys that they're supposed to do this because, you know, you honor your mom and dad because then you live long. But what happens when Jim acts contrary in every way to the way the Sunday school books tell you you're supposed to behave? Bad things are supposed to happen to those kind of people, right? Well, not to Jim. For example, once he climbed up in Farmer Acorn's apple tree to steal apples. And you know what happened? The limb didn't break, he didn't fall, he didn't break his arm, he didn't get torn up by the farmer's great dog, and then he didn't languish in a sickbed for weeks, and he didn't repent, and he didn't become good. All these things are going to happen, and they didn't happen to him because of his disobedience. There was another time that he went boating on Sunday instead of going to church, and he didn't drown. There was another time he got caught out in a storm when he was fishing on Sunday, and he didn't get struck by lightning. And so Twain goes through all of the ways that Jim breaks the rules and good things happen to him. And finally, he concludes by uh, recalling all of these strange providences in Jim's life. And it concludes with Jim all grown up. And here's how Mark Twain summarized his life. Jim got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality. And, and now he is the infernalist wickedest scoundrel in the entire county, and he is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. <laughs> it's terrible when sin pays off. And in a way that's perhaps not quite so humorous, Solomon wants to deal with that exact same thing today. And so we begin Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. 
And he talks about a particular learning that every single one of you have had the opportunity to, to experience. Not everyone graduates from high school. Not everyone graduates from college. Not everyone goes on to do a graduate degree, but everyone has learned from the school of experience. Anybody enrolled in the School of Hard Knocks recently? Not a whole lot of fun. I'd like to get a refund for my, um, my tuition in that one. But the, sometimes the wisdom of experience can entail some painful lessons. And to that, all of God's people said, oh yeah, I know that. I have been there. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Solomon says, in my futile life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, in spite of his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. Here's a righteous man who long life is supposed to belong to the righteous, and yet he dies young, and there's a wicked man who lives a long life in spite of his evil. To quote another uh, philosopher, uh, maybe not Mark Twain, uh, Billy Joel didn't quite get it right. Only the good die young. Not all the time. Sometimes they do. You don't get very far in the Bible before Cain kills his brother. Abel died young. Jesus died young. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, died young. And sometimes, tragically, even the reverse is true, that long life is given not to the righteous, but to the wicked. If you have felt that rub, let me tell you, you're in good company. Because all throughout the Scriptures, there are refrains where God's people lament when the good things that are supposed to happen to the righteous happen to the wicked. Listen to this, Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14. Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. One of the hard things to wrap your mind around if you want to live a life that is wise is why do good blessings happen to wicked people? Here's the thing that's difficult, to add insult to injury. It is uh, widely assumed that long life is given to the righteous. Kids, why are you supposed to obey your parents? Because you'll live long in the land. That's not like you're not bartering. What's terrible is when you don't love your parents, but you obey them so that you can live long. That's not the whole point. It's not that. But the, the, the point is that people assume that long life was given to the righteous. So if you die early, oh, there must have been some hidden wickedness. Wasn't that the counsel that Job's friends gave him? Job, bro, your life stinks. What have you done to tick God off? Nothing really. Actually, if you read the beginning of my book, it says that Satan's the one who's doing this to me. But no, no, no love for Job from his friends. So in addition to the righteous inheriting what the wicked deserve, sometimes the righteous are counted as wicked because if you died early, you must not have been righteous. Verses 16 and 17 goes on and Solomon ponders this. He gives this advice because sometimes the good die young. He says, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. What did he just say? Don't be overly, excessively righteous, don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die 
before your time. Now, it's strange. When I read verse 16, I did not hear a whole chorus of amens. Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. And all the backsliders in the room said, amen, that's my life verse. Man, I am taking one for the team. I am not trying to be too righteous. Not at all. I'm not doing that. Listen, what's his, what's his point here? Solomon is not against godliness at all. If you pay attention to the scriptures, Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes it really clear that he strives for godliness. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says this. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. The point that he's trying to make by saying, don't be overly righteous, don't be too wise, don't be wicked, is that it is possible to care too much about righteousness and not enough about wickedness. It is possible to care too much about righteousness and not enough about wickedness. He is not opposed to godliness. What he's trying to tell us to do is to pursue righteousness, but not so much that you become a Pharisee. Don't become self-righteous. Don't be excessively righteous. If you are always right, let me just suggest that you are probably always wrong. At least in your spirit. Some are so righteous that they think that they can control God and manipulate Him. God, I'm 43. I shouldn't have cancer. I tithe. Why can't you give it to the drunk guy that lives down the street? He deserves it careful because the only thing we all deserve you know what it is right it's hell it's what we deserve the problem with again obeying your parents not because you love your parents but because you want to live long that's self-serving it's unloving it's self-love and so solomon is asking us to do something extraordinary he's asking us on both hands to recognize that perfect righteousness is outside of our grasp we cannot be perfectly righteous But he's saying, on the other hand, don't get so frustrated that you give up and you start working at wickedness. That's not the solution either. You don't want to, don't be be self-righteous, but don't work at wickedness. And so in verse 18, he says that the godly person, the wise person finds this balance. Look at what it says. It is good that you grasp the one, that, that perfect righteousness is outside of your grasp. It's good that you hold on to that, but do not let the other slip from your hand. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. The one who fears God will have that right balance between not trying to be excessively or self-righteous, but he'll stay away from wickedness too, and he'll find that middle course. He's talking about the painful lessons that we learn through life. He goes on and he says that if we want to be wise, that wisdom should make us weary of people, especially ourselves. That kind of sticks, doesn't it? I don't mind the weariness about other people, right? Yeah, they're all wicked. Wait, wait, wait. There's fingers pointing back at me? Oh, dang. Verses 19 through 24, he deals with this. Look at, let's walk through this and look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, wisdom makes the wise man stronger than 10 rulers of a city. Now, this is great. Because what he's saying is those who attain to some measure of wisdom 
have certain benefits that come along with it. There is a strength for the person who possesses wisdom that the person who does not have wisdom does not possess. And he says specifically, this is great, this is a good analogy, it works for me. He says that the person who is wise is made so strong that he is stronger than 10 rulers of the city. And what's that all about? Is he like Superman? He's got superpowers? He's, he's Thor? What is he? No, that's not it. I know none of you watch beauty contests, Miss America, Miss Universe, um, whatever. But if a woman in one of these beauty pageants is sufficiently articulate and has some kind of particular skill that she showcases playing the violin and she's objectively beautiful, the judges award her an award and they call her a perfect 10. It's a picture of perfection. So it's saying that wisdom provides a perfect strength. It's not saying, you know, wisdom is stronger than 10 men, but if they had 11, they would kick your tail. That's not it. They're just saying there's a, there's a perfection to this strength that wisdom gives. But then here's the kicker. Look what he says in verse 20. In verse 19, he says, wisdom gives you strength. Wisdom gives you strength. Verse 20, there is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Which is it? Does wisdom give us strength? Or is wisdom kind of pointless because none of us are really good? That's exactly where Solomon wants us to be. He says, all people, despite the great strength that wisdom gives, all people, even the wise, are sinners. They're sinners. So let me get, let me get really personal here, okay? I am a sinner. I hate to disappoint you, but my family already knows this really well. Okay? I'm a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. And if I was the only person that lived on the face of the planet, I would still need a Savior. Uh, even if I was by my, I can get in trouble by myself. I don't need anybody else. You know, I can get in trouble all on my own. You guys help a lot, um, but like, <laughs> I can do it. Um, you are a sinner. Your kids and your grandkids are sinners. Your sweet, 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 great, great granny is a sinner. Doesn't matter how wise she is, everybody is a sinner. And why do we get so offended when we're reminded of this? There will be people who go home today and go, man, that was a terrible sermon. Because like, pastor told me I'm a sinner. Surprise. (laughs) Surprise. And some of you are going to fold your arms and go, don't like it. Hated the sermon. Didn't like the preacher any better. And man, talking about being a sinner, I just, I don't like it. I don't care, number one. I didn't say it. I, I didn't. These are not my words. I'm reading out of this book up here. I, you should have one in your lap too. Um, and it's what God's word says. Our job is to be faithful to apply it to our life. You know, if you don't like it, Solomon does us a favor. He gets extraordinarily personal and he gives us an illustration in verse 21 and 22 that proclaims your guiltiness. Verse 21 and 22 says this, don't pay attention to everything people say. Somebody needs to crochet that Um, because some of you, your big problem is your ears are too big. Um, and your heart is too small. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may, this is the Bible being nice, you may hear your servant cursing you. No, you will. You will. If you're listening like that, you're, you're, you, you are going to hear it. Has anyone ever heard somebody say something bad about them? 
you are much too pious and self-righteous this morning. Every single one of you have heard somebody say something that you you wish you could erase it from your databanks, but once you hear it, it's there. He says, don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Verse 22, for you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Solomon says, all right, you don't like the fact that I'm telling you that everybody, even the wise are sinners. Let me give you this little example. If your tongue could talk, would it tattle on you? If your tongue could talk, would it tattle on you? So Chuck, you're not going to sit on the front row ever again in a Baptist church. If I could say, Chuck, Chuck, come here. Can I, can I borrow your tongue for a second? And if we could personify his tongue and give it the mic. You won't even let him use Elena's mic. And here's, here's Chuck's tongue, you know, kind of leaving a slime trail and up here getting ready to talk. And we just said, hey, Chuck's tongue. Tell us what Chuck talked about this week. How quickly do you think you could make it to the back door? Okay? All right, so Chuck's done. We didn't, I'm not going to give you any of the juicy details. Who's next? Who's, who's our next volunteer? Oh, nobody. If your tongue could talk, would it tell on you? Oh, it would. Now, you're much more pious than to actually talk about people. You, you, it's like um, Jeopardy. You have to form your answer in the form of a question. We think if we, if we gossip about people in the form of a prayer request that it's okay. Well, the answer is, uh, you know, what is, you know, bless his heart. Uh, no, that doesn't count. You're not allowed to do that. Um, your friends talk about you, and you return the favor by sinning with your tongue against them. Because you know, like two wrongs, that makes a right, right? Your tongue and my tongue give the most ineloquent testimony to the totality of our depravity. I don't even need to look at your heart. I don't even need to examine your mind. I don't even need to see what your hands do. I can take the smallest and most insignificant part of your body, your tongue, and it will give us heaps of evidence that you are a sinner. So don't be so upset when the Bible says it because you ultimately know it. You're just living in denial. There's all kinds of sin language that is used in this passage. They talk about the wicked who commit wickedness and they, they like sins and they are sinners and they do evil and there's not a righteous man. And these, these people who think that they're righteous give themselves to gossip and cursing and fornication and adultery and plotting and schemes. And what, the, what Solomon's trying to say Every facet of what makes you, you, is depraved, is messed up. So like your mind, the way you think, it's messed up. Your heart, the things you love, is messed up. Your psychology, yes, you're messed up. Your emotions, messed up. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you do is tainted by sin. There's no part of you that is completely unblemished by it. That's why our world's so messed up. Like you don't, we don't, we don't need Antifa and ISIS or whatever other group. We're quite enough. The people in this room are quite enough to break the world. Augustine, the famous third century Christian theologian, said the only reason that we think babies are innocent is because they're not old enough to talk. Oh, they're so cute. Just wait a little bit. Because once they start talking... Don't shut up. <laughs> Sam, that was your dad, in case anybody was wondering. Scott Crouch right here in the front row. What's the big point? We're sinners. 
And what Solomon goes on to say in verses 23 and 24 is that our limitations are not only moral, they're also intellectual. Our limitations are not only moral, they're also intellectual. Look at what he says. Verse 23, I have tested all of this by wisdom. I resolved, I will be wise. But it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? Solomon is trying to understand a broken world. And his conclusion is that the the breadth of the subject is too far for him to reach across to find the solution on the other side. And if it wasn't wide horizontally, it's deep vertically. He says, God's the the mystery of this is deep. I don't see the bottom. And this is the wisest man in the world saying it's too much for me. Our limitations are intellectual. We're not God. We don't know it all. And what Solomon is encouraging us is he's saying, don't let what you don't know and validate what you know to be true. It is, I don't like, I don't like greeting card theology. I don't, um, I prefer the Bible to Hallmark every time. Because sometimes the quaint, trite little statements just seem too quaint and trite. But it is true that life is hard and God is good. What we don't know about why life is so difficult should not invalidate the truth that we know about God's goodness. Solomon's just saying, don't let what you don't know invalidate what you know to be true. Solomon is on this insistent quest to learn about life. And in verses 25 through 29, nine times he uses the language of searching or finding out or discovering. He wants to know the answer to life. He wants to know why evil exists. He wants to know, is God really good? And along the way, in verses 25 through 29, he makes some disturbing discoveries about life and wisdom. Some disturbing discoveries about life and wisdom, and he finds out four things. Let's begin in verse 25. Here's his search. I turned my thoughts to know, to explore, to seek wisdom and an explanation for things, and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. And he begins with the first thing that he finds in verse 26, that wickedness is a constant and great temptation. Wickedness is a constant and great temptation. Now, I know when you graduated from high school, some of you said, I am done with school, I ain't ever going back. That's not how wickedness works. You never graduate from it. You say no to it today, and guess what's looking, at, looking, looking, staring you in the face as soon as you open your eyes tomorrow? Temptation. Doesn't sleep, doesn't eat. It, it is ready to eat your lunch. And just because you graduated from it yesterday doesn't mean that you, you're not in a remedial lesson here today. Look at what he says in verse 26. Um, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net, and her hands chains. The one who, pray, who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Solomon pictures temptation as a vile and seducing prostitute. He wants to, to create a word picture of the seduction and the temptation of wickedness. And he creates this, this woman that is actually used multiple times throughout the scripture to talk about wickedness. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 13 through 18 says this. The woman folly, the foolish woman, she's rowdy and she's gullible and she knows nothing. She sits by the doorway of her house on the seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. 
Whoever is inexperienced, come on in. I'll educate you to the one who lacks sense. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten secretly is tasty. Let me cook you a meal you'll never forget. But this man, he doesn't know that the departed spirits are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. She's a murderer. And if you don't like the um, picture of wickedness as a vile prostitute, you can think of wickedness as a black hole. Something in, in, in the created order from which nothing escapes. Everything is sucked into it and destroyed. And there's only one route of escape in verse 26. It says this woman, she's seducing people, she's wicked, but the godly can escape from her. Those, the sinner, uh, they're consumed. So he, he finds out that wickedness is a constant and great temptation. In verse 27, in the first part of verse 28, he goes on and he says something that we've already reflected on, that there are just some things that you will never know. Verse 27, look, says the teacher. I have discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation, which my soul continually searches for, but does not find. Solomon says, you know what? I'm going to figure out this equation, and I'm going to be like an accountant. I'm going to take this experience, and I'm going to add it to this, and I'm going to divide it by this, and I'm going to multiply it by this, and it equals no sum. Can't figure it out. Doesn't compute. There's nothing for me. It doesn't add up. He said, here's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. That doesn't seem right. But then when he talks about this wicked woman, he says that this wicked woman will destroy everyone except for the godly who have the ability to flee for. So it sounds like if you're wicked, there will be consequences for your actions. But then how do the righteous die in the righteousness? Which is it? Is it, is it does righteousness not get you anything? Or does wickedness earn you punishment solomon says i'm the wisest man in the world and i don't know how it works just some things that you're never going to know verse 28 he does find something else out he continues on uh, in the last part of that verse he says um here's the deal i've been looking i've been searching my soul's been looking among a thousand people i have found one true man but among all these i have not found a true woman again not my words His point is that there are exactly zero upright people. If you can take your political, correct, sexist self off the shelf, what he has to say is not entirely flattering to either gender. It's not. And what he's saying is, there's nobody that's righteous. There's nobody that is truly upright. And so he concludes in verse 29, saying, guys, there is one thing I want to make sure that you know. There's one exact truth that I have found. Verse 29, only see this. Guys, pay attention to this. Hey, recognize this fact. Take note of this. I have discovered that God made people upright. But they have pursued many schemes. He says all this. Wickedness is a constant and great temptation. There are some things you will never know. There are exactly zero upright people. And his fourth and final point is that God is not blameworthy. He made people upright. God is not blameworthy. There's a little play in words. 
Solomon wants to figure everything out. He wants to figure out what is the scheme of everything. How do we understand life? What is the scheme by which everything finds its place and fits together? And his conclusion is, the scheme of all things is that man is a schemer. Man's a schemer. And so the story from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is what Isaiah says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Message of the Bible. Now certainly, if you, have, uh, you went to school, <clears throat> you have seen the picture of the evolution chart where, you know, you got, you, got the, you got the monkey down over here, you know, doing his little thing. And then you got, I don't know what it is, like a walking monkey, you know. And then you got like a, a hunchback dude, you know, who's kind of upright. And then you got the guy with the business suit kind of strutting around, you know, where it's gone from, you know, simplicity to complexity. And we've evolved. Solomon actually says it's the exact opposite that is true. That God created man upright. But we have devised many schemes. Not upright anymore. So this sounds terrible. Let's just take up the offering and go home. Terrible as it sounds, it's true. If you're going to be wise, you need to understand in all of its unvarnished ugliness what the human condition is exactly about. You, my friend, are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are an extraordinarily proficient, everyday practicing sinner. Me too. The Bible says that even our very best righteousness is even still sin. Like, wrap your mind around that for a second. Your best righteousness is filthy rags. And I'd encourage you, if you've got a study Bible, figure out what he says when he says filthy rags. It's not good. The truth is, if we were the whole point of the story, this would be a pretty depressing sermon. But what if? And I'm going to conjecture here. There's not a whole lot of people that agree with me, which means I'm probably wrong. But what if, in a way that Solomon had no understanding, in a way which he's looking in the mirror, but it's all fogged up, he can't quite see what it is. What if, instead of making what we think is a sexist comment, I've looked, I haven't found a single upright woman but I have found one man. What if this morning he's asking us, have you really found that upright man? And it's not you. It's not me. We hear a message like this, and, and there's, there's a little equation we have to do. Because if, if, if God, by his grace, has granted us a glimpse of the depth of our sin, we need that. But if we don't have God, we're left depressed, right? Like, we understand sin, we don't know God, equals depression. Now, if on the other hand, we are flippantly, you know, God is my BFF. Yeah, I know God, but we don't know our sin. What's the resulting sum? Pride. You are left no better than when you started. Because you think you know God, but you're unwilling to talk about your sin. The end result is just humanism. 
But if God will give us the clarity of sight to say, yeah, this is me, you know, rotten sinner. I understand my sin, but I, I know God through Christ. Then we're not left despairing. We're not left with pride. We're left forgiven. We're left saved. We're left purified because we have come to find the one upright man that Solomon is referring to and nobody knows what he's talking about. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? No, clearly not. Solomon may have been wise, but he at least had enough humility to know that he was a sinner too. We can know the one who never sinned. We can know the one who came as the sacrifice for people who do. And if you don't recognize your sin, he's not your sacrifice. For him to be your sacrifice, you have to recognize your need. And if we, if we know Jesus, we strike that right balance of being aware of the incredible depths of our sinfulness and the matchless and victorious grace of God in Christ that is given to those who repent and believe. We have done, gone on and messed the world up more fully than we will ever recognize. We don't know it. We don't even know what side, what, what, what side is up. There are times that don't make sense to us. And the question for you, will you have the wisdom to completely and totally entrust yourself to God? It's strange to me that people expect God to take care of them when they die and they don't trust him in life. That's a tragedy. That, that may not even be the gospel because the gospel is for this life as well as for the life to come. And if you truncate your gospel so much that you can't trust God in life, then how do you know that you've trusted him with your soul? To entrust ourselves to God means that we acknowledge the very best of our righteousness is unrighteousness. Because for us to be healed, we have to remember that Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the unrighteous. That's me. And that's you. Pray with me, please. Father, this wisdom in Ecclesiastes is unsought. We don't like to be reminded of these things. I'm okay, and you're okay, we're okay, everything's good. And Father, that's not true. We need wisdom to pull back the blinders from our eyes to show us what is really going on in life. Because for us to pitter-patter with our sin is to pitter-patter with your sacrifice. And Father, that is the one thing that we cannot do. For us to make much of Christ, we have to, uh, with no embellishment, acknowledge our sin. And in a paradox way, the more we recognize our sin, the more clearly we see what you have done for us in Christ. So I pray today that as we have the opportunity to conclude the service by again singing your praises, but even more so having the opportunity to remember our sin and your sacrifice. We pray that you will make this an act of faith. In your name we pray. Amen.